Hello everyone, it's good to be back with you. Welcome to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 31. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. It's good to have you back, Lisa. Thank you. I've missed being here. It is. Last week, I nearly said I'm Lisa after Liam said I'm (laughs) Liam. (laughs) I was confused. You wish. You <laughs> wish. <laughs> That's right. I was expressing what was deep in my heart. <laughs> um, so we we should acknowledge today that the episode is going out on Sorry Day, just before the start of Reconciliation Week. So I'm sure I speak for, for all of us, and we uh, acknowledge the importance of this day, and I think uh, as well as acknowledging all the past wrongs to uh, Indigenous people in Australia, that we recommit to making a brighter future for for everyone, and obviously particularly for everyone listening to this show, uh, for children, in uh, in uh, whether they're in early education centres or not, but an important day to acknowledge, and I'm sure a lot of uh, early childhood organisations services will be doing the same today. Um, but we will kick off, as we always do, with the news list. Uh, we've got a, just a few things to bring with, for you this week. We want to start by that say that the Education Department has begun a series of information sessions which will be rolling around the country. They kicked off in Canberra uh, this morning as we record. We're recording this on Thursday night, so I went and attended the first one. The majority of it was pretty much just rolling through publicly available information on the Education Department website, uh, including the um, including a, a bit of a discussion about the, the draft guidelines for the Community Childcare Fund, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But um, look, I walked away not with a huge amount of extra information and generally feeling that my concerns about the Jobs for Families package are exactly the same, if not slightly more concerning than when I than when I went in. Um, I think it's worth pointing out probably just a couple of quick things, um, obviously particularly given we're in Reconciliation Week. The uh, It seems pretty clear now that the budget-based funded services, the, the direct funding to that will stop and that the current uh, 68.1 million which is uh, currently sent directly to Aboriginal Child and Family Centres as part of the BBF funding will instead be used as part of the Community Child Care Fund and it will only be available that 68.1 million stream of the CCF will only be available to BBF services that agree to transition over to the Jobs for Families package so and look my view is you can wrap it up where we want that is basically still cutting still cutting budget-based funded services and I know that advocacy bodies still have pretty significant concerns that those services will be able to transition over to the mainstream and, system. And Liam, there's another another thing in that that you mentioned to me that the um, now that s- under additional fee subsidies, that's the part of, you know, part of the new package, you can only have 50% of your enrolments getting additional fee subsidies. And for BBF services where some of them would be eligible, like in some services more than 50% would be, that even when they transition, they're still not going to be able to, like even if they could survive under the the, um, childcare subsidy, that catch will, you know, make it doubly hard for them. Yeah. I think basically the more you find out about this package, the more concerning it is. the other thing I wanted to bring to light was the minister's rules and secretary's rules, which we've talked about before. So these are still unknown parts of the legislation that are still being developed and worked out, um, even though the legislation passed a couple of months ago. Uh, we still have no timetable for when they'll be released or exactly what they're being looked like, uh, which you know to me is still pretty surprising given the impact. Particularly, this is going to have on 
the vulnerable children and their ability to access additional subsidies to attend early childhood. So we still have no real time frame of when that's uh, going to come out, which is fairly disappointing to me at least. Um, and then this was actually a really interesting one, which I think we knew, or I, I don't think I had quite twigged though. So I'm sure Lisa and Landy, I'm sure you both knew and I just didn't read this stuff properly. <clears throat> and this is where we get into a little bit into the weeds, people. And I will recommend if you want a really big rundown of the JFF package, um, if you're new to the podcast, is go back to episode 18, where we had a really big deep dive into the, the Jobs for Families package. But, um, but you know, the, the, the big thing to think about is that essentially children's right to access early child education is really now going to be even more tightly controlled by the child's uh, families, uh, basically, you know, their roster health and their working uh, for a... For a, uh, a two-parent family, the activity test will be determined by the parent uh, who is on the lowest amount of work. So one parent could be working, you know, 40 hours a week. One could be working 15. The activity test for children will be determined by the lowest. And I think that was known, but I hadn't really been, I hadn't really hit me in the face until today. But Liam, it's okay because one of the things that you pointed out came out from today was that. You know, one of the things that guarantees you passing the activity test is if you un do unpaid work for the family business. So all those families, you know, oh that God. own businesses, <laughs> like, you know, the stay-at-home mums of the eastern suburbs, they're going to be just fine. God. If you don't happen to own a family business, you might be a little bit stuffed. Might That's be a sudden crazy. rush on registration of uh, family businesses all of a sudden. Yeah, but also, yeah. what about in those family businesses that are going belly up <clears> and you become an indentured slave as well? Goodness <laughs> me. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Um, uh, Liam, Liam, I just wanted to say, sorry, go back a bit to the yeah, BBF yeah. thing. Yeah. One of the um, things that I think will be really interesting is I actually went back and, and tracked um, the Nick Xenophon team's Senator Sky Kokoschke Moore her statements on the night and just before the night when they said that they had made an agreement with the education minister um, about BBF funding. And what she said was that he'd committed to protecting existing childcare funding for Indigenous, remote and disadvantaged communities. And her actual quote was, this will ensure that the BBF program continues and supports the most vulnerable children in our community and that Indigenous children and children in rural and re remote communities continue to have access to early childhood education and care just in, as any other child in Australia. And I really wonder what the Xenophon team think of what's now happening with it. Mm. Might need to be pointed out to them. Hmm. Yeah. yeah but the thing, it will all. The, the problem is that it will come full circle at some stage, but it will be too late mm. for the children that are there now. But it'll be, you know, it'll be reinvented in some other form because it's exactly those reasons that you're saying. It's just such poor foresight, isn't it? There's yeah. none. There's none. Um, 
The only other thing I wanted to point out uh, just in general about the information session which really stood out to me is just the complete 180 on the language and terminology of which the sector is used about. So we were greeted as we came in with a brand new shiny brochure that's been developed by the education department. The word education is not mentioned except in where it says education.gov.au. It is childcare all the way through. It is exactly the same on the uh, Department of Education website under the Jobs for Families package. Um this may be a small thing, and we've talked about you know language and terminology on the show before. Um, to me, it was really shocking and surprising after all the work we've done to to move this stuff forward. The National Quality Framework, um, even the you know Productivity Commission, I think called it childcare and early childhood learning. So at least we've got some learning in there. It's 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 quite it, it's frustrating, and I think worrying for me that this is a big step back in value and respect for the sector. Did many people mention that when you were at the session? Uh, well, I did. I don't know what other people. <laughs> you troublemaker! You How basic... dare you point out that the education department seems to have missed out on the word education? <laughs> yeah, I think you've got. I think there's another language problem there, Lee. Many <laughs> does not equal one. But no. maybe that's like a big call out to people. One thing that yeah. they can address when they go to these sessions. What this... else would you tell them to ask? Um, oh, look, what, what a fantastic question. I would definitely talk about the budget-based funded services. So I would ask what they, do they think services will transition to the mainstream model? I think they're being very careful about how they're answering that. The answer I got when I asked was that um, they were confident that every service would be supported to transition to the mainstream uh, mainstream operating model, which is not the same as every service being able to do it. Uh, I would definitely, one of the interesting things was talking about what the because of the change we won't go into the detail because we'll get bogged down but you know go back and listen to episode 18 there'll be this these changes could lead to significant changes to how organizations operate in terms of sessional care versus full day care um uh, sorry education and care asking the department you know what's what how do they think services should respond to this has there been any modeling uh my the answer i got was no and then the big one is you know what is the how do they think this will affect you know the most vulnerable children so they acknowledge and accept that uh, the activity guidelines will cut out um, early childhood australia's estimated 100,000 children uh, potentially from the of the most vulnerable children in australia from the system what do they think about that do they think that's acceptable um, they're probably the big three things i'd hear what's the impact on the sector impact on indigenous children and impact on vulnerable children someone has to stand up for children because it ain't going to be the education department did yeah. I say that? <laughs> uh, the other quick thing that's been released as well as part of the overall Jobs for Families package is uh, guidelines for sector consultation on the community childcare fund. So this is an additional stream uh, to the Jobs for Families package, which looks at things like capital improvements, uh, support for services operating in specific places. Uh, the we'll, we'll obviously include a link for the sector to respond to that. There's probably not a huge, huge amount to go into except that I probably I'll just the, the big points to think about is they'll only be available for not-for-profit organisations, and in particular uh, areas of priority which are accessed by a fairly mind-boggling range of data sets that the education government has access to, including CIFR and geographical uh, something called geographical layer meshing, which I've got no idea what it is, but. Um, I have a sneaky feeling, I didn't get a chance to ask this at the time, that the actual number of services that will be eligible to apply for this is actually going to be pretty small. Yeah. 
It's interesting to Lem, because I reckon there's, I've looked back in the Productivity Commission report today to see how many services were getting funding under community support program, which is this kind of um, yeah. like the predecessor to this. And it was 2,100 back in 2012. They knocked off the um, family daycares from getting that. So it probably came down to 1,500 services. Um, but it was more money. So I, um, I think you said, Liam, didn't you, that it, that each of them were only going to get roughly twenty. They were suggested the department suggested that be twenty five thousand dollars per grant under this. Yeah, that was. So if suggestion. you divide the fifty, yeah, if you divide the fifty million by twenty five thousand, then you know conceivably each of those fifteen hundred could in fact get some money out of it. But it really depends on how much they spend on capital. But with the capital, um, you've got to supply 50% of the funds yeah. in either money or kind. Um, there's, you know, there's quite a few things in those um, in those guidelines that I think are a little bit funny. But um, interestingly, when they say they're up for consultation, the questions that they're asking are just does this make sense? Is this easy enough for you to do? Yeah, so Which, to be fair, a lot not, of the stuff that comes out of the government doesn't, so at least they're self-aware enough to ask the question. Yeah, well, I made a suggestion when I filled in the survey. I said, look, if you had a flowchart at the front that made services realise really quickly that the majority of them wouldn't be eligible <laughs> for funding. I didn't actually put it in those funding terms, of course, but... Um, then it would mean they wouldn't have to read, you know, 20 pages of bureaucraties to discover that. <laughs> and I thought that would be quite useful. Um, well, they might take you up on that suggestion, Lisa, I somehow doubt it. <laughs> well, no, it was phrased in much more oh, okay. nicer bureaucratic terms. Lovely. Yeah. Um, so that's one to watch, I think. So the consultation's open until mid-June, I think. Oh, I've probably got that wrong, but... Um, the it, it, overall part of this is, I think, at the speed the department's having to work at is really interesting. I know there's also the other big thing is the the development of the new IT system that's going to manage the new uh, childcare subsidy. Uh, I, this is all happening, I think, a lot quicker than the, the department would like. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens over the next few months as they have to roll out a whole range of of different things for the sector. Uh, and then I think, Lisa, you're going to bring us the next point. I think it's Hugger, it's, it's Hugger Mining Magnate Week this week. Do you want to tell oh, us about Twiggy, Twiggy Forest? Yeah. Yes, so Twiggy Forest, Australia's newest and richest philanthropist, has donated $400 million um, to you know, worthy projects in Australia. And um, 75, 75 million, 25 million, I've forgotten now. 75 is going million. To, 75 million, yeah, is going towards early childhood education. There's been no word on what it's going to go on. And it's kind of interesting in a way because in the Jobs for Families package, $20 million is quarantined to spend on something that um, the same Twiggy Forest recommended in... I think it was called the Forest Review, Forestry Review, um, uh, which was about multi-purpose services for Aboriginal children. Um, so, you know, the government has um, has quarantined some money for a project that's 
uh, dear to his heart, um, and he's now giving $75 million to early childhood education. And I think, um, you know, we will take that $75 million, <laughs> no matter how he's spending it willingly. But when you think about the fact that um, uh, the estimates are that a billion dollars a year leaves the early education and care sector as profit for for profit child early education and care services then it kind of puts the 75 million that one philanthropist mm-hmm. is putting into the system in a bit of perspective it, it's that's really so true i used to think of money like that as being quite big money until i looked at all the money that <laughs> went out in terms of um you know rorts and also um directly to the the sector for subsidising uh, private funds. And now you're right, it seems like nothing. Although, good for him, and if we had another 100 like him, then that would be fantastic. Yeah. yeah and I, look, and I really love the fact that through him doing it, it's raised the issue. Unfortunately, a lot of the media are just saying childhood education or something, whereas the actual words were early childhood education. But, you know, I think it's great that it's, you know, that an individual has followed the story so closely that he understands that early education is one of the best bangs for your buck. I I also heard him talking on the radio the other day about philanthropy in Australia which is we do have a problem because people don't give publicly and because there's always a lot of um, discussion around whether they're just doing it for a tax break or whether they're doing it to you know gain particular status and so he said it was very important to give this publicly Um, in the past he hadn't given publicly anything it's very important because he thinks there needs to be more of it so maybe he's going to set a trend yeah Absolutely. That would be nice. Maybe some of the um, media magnet or two. (laughs) No, I've got an idea. What about those providers that are making lots of cash, like huge amounts of cash? Sell one of your houses. Chuck it into the system. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not go there. That could lead us down a dark path. But um, Leanne, I think you're going to take us over the Tasman now for a story from New Zealand. Uh, yes, this is the Budget 2017, um, and it's a, an article that reviews all of the changes that are happening. Well, the the, the presumed changes around their budget, that um, the it's talking about schools and early childhood centres on tenterhooks over their future funding. And what struck me about this article was that you could have just changed the names once you got to early childhood, (laughs) and it was exactly the same story here, right down to the policy. So the the funding policy was, um, you know, trying to allocate more dollars to disadvantaged families, Um, but the changes that services were making was that they they were reducing the number of qualified teachers that they took on. So, you know, it's with... It's just changing the face of early childhood education in reducing the number of qualified teachers and therefore changing the quality of those services. And it's it's just not a, a great um, outcome for 
early childhood if the budget goes that way. But it did strike me that you could have subbed out all of those names and written in Australian names and it would have told exactly the same story. What was interesting was at the Lisa, I think you just yawned then. I did, but it's got nothing to do with you. I'm very sorry. I'm not sleeping well at the moment. I'm Leo, actually really <laughs> We have pulled her up on it before. Is this second offence? We have. But I'll just, it's because I'll just... we record so late at night. Oh, no. I'll just I'll just quickly finish because I realise this is a bedtime story. So um, <laughs> the, the the last the last sentence or the last couple of sentences say. Uh, talked about the new minister taking over from from someone and it says Kay took over as education minister from Haikia Parata this month Hipkins said although she was less abrasive the underlying <laughs> policy agenda was the same <laughs> yikes that's a bit of a backhanded <laughs> I know Whoa. I thought wow okay sounds like the sort of comment that would be made about Julian Triggs wouldn't it Oh. Yeah, yeah, but it was, it was okay then. Fair enough. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I wish ministers talked about each other like that here at the same party. That'd be great. <laughs> just, just a different culture over there. <laughs> so we will have links to all the various things we've talked about there at our website, earlyeducationshow.com, or if you're listening to this on your podcast app, you'll find it uh, just if you hit the information button on the episode you're listening to now. Uh, we're going to move on to our main feature for... Uh, today's episode so we as we said tomorrow is the start of reconciliation week and it's actually a fairly important reconciliation week this week it's there's a couple of pretty um, big uh, events that are being sort of commemorated from about 25 and 50 years ago but I might leave that for our interview I I was very fortunate to catch up with Alex Shane from Reconciliation Australia a bit earlier and I will be uh, going to a quick break but then heading to an interview with him Uh, he uh she talks really uh, excellently just about the work that Reconciliation Australia is doing in early childhood uh, centres and also the importance of acknowledging and celebrating reconciliation uh, with young children as well. So stick with us for a quick musical break and we'll be back in just a sec. All right, we're back and we're here to talk Reconciliation Week with um, our fantastic guests for the week. So I'm uh, going to let Alex introduce himself. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Liam. Um, yeah, my name's Alex Shane. I, I work for Reconciliation Australia. Um, we're a non-government organisation uh, who look at, at reconciliation, I guess, uh, helping all Australians have a better understanding and respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures. Um, and the program that I work on, I come from, I'm a primary school teacher, um, and by training, by background, I still call myself a teacher. Um, the program that I work on is called Narraganawali, and Narraganawali is our uh, the program that Reconciliation Australia has created that is designed specifically for uh, schools and early learning services. So anyone in early learning primary or secondary school across the country can access all of our resources um, for free and and take action around reconciliation. It's designed specifically for people that might be thinking, um, what do I, what can I do? Or I've heard this word reconciliation and I don't really know what it means, which is totally understandable. Um, this this is what this entire program is built for. Wonderful. And obviously that's you know particularly fantastic for the audience on the show, and we'll, we'll get to that. I'd, I'd love to hear, Alex, you know, just in general, you know, um, what does is, what is Reconciliation Australia do? What are the sort of big projects that are ongoing? Obviously, we're coming into a National Reconciliation Week, so I imagine it's a, it's a busy week for you <laughs> coming up. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, what, are the big, what are the big focuses for Reconciliation Australia? 
We um so we work in a number of areas. We we've been as an organisation, Reconciliation Australia has been around um, since so. Uh, 25 years last year was our 25th anniversary and when I say our anniversary I mean the anniversary I guess for Australia of having a formal process for reconciliation um, that was handed down in um, 1991 and then came obviously um, just getting my dates correct yep 2016 so we're 25 years later um, and out of the that came out of the Aboriginal deaths in custody report that resulted in the determination that we needed to have a process for reconciliation um, that was obviously formed an organisation called the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. That then turned into uh, Reconciliation Australia. And we, we've we been in operation for about 15, 16 years now, uh, maybe 17 years, 2001, um, as an independent organisation, non-gov, not-for-profit. Um, most of the work that we're known for is in workplaces. And, and most people probably have heard of Reconciliation Action Plans and have heard of the idea of a Reconciliation Action Plan. And, and that is certainly a very... Um, that's the key component of what Reconciliation Australia is probably known for over the last 15 years. Um, that program has been running for 10 years in workplaces um, and is specifically designed to help organisations and workplaces, big government departments, banks, um, employ big employers to have a good understanding of the sorts of things that they can do to further um, all Australians' understanding and respect of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, histories, cultures. But the... Um, but that's one thing we do. You ask what we do. That's one thing we do. Another thing we do, I'm trying to do, talk, trying to tell you everything we do that, that, <laughs> isn't, that isn't Narragunawali. I can't help but default back to, to tell you about Narragunawali. It's um, coming up, I um, promise, Alex. That's right. I know. It's going to come. The other part is um, is the another thing that we are very proud of is the Indigenous Governance Awards. Um, that's a program that has been running as well for many years now and looks at, at finding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-owned organisations, um, businesses particularly, who are exhibiting excellence in governance and and obviously that's something that that links strongly to self-determination um which is a big big word that gets used a lot and people people talk about it and they say everyone should look after themselves we just need to you know why why can't um everyone determine their own fate i guess that idea when we're working in a society that has had for at least 230 years um systemic policies to to make things less equal and less equitable, um, the idea of self-determination is not an easy concept um, to just throw around. And yeah. so when we are now seeing really fantastic evidence of, of businesses um, run, uh, managed and directed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which are succeeding well in excess of anyone else's um, interest. So that's a fantastic thing. And that's an award process that we run every two years. Um, the last... The awards last year, they get bigger every year. The awards last year were, were the biggest we've had and, and they'll be again next year in 2018. That's great. Yeah. That's fantastic. You've done you've done very well summarising everything, but I think so, your, yeah. your favourite project. But um, and look, apologies in advance if I if I get the pronunciation right, but I'd, I'd love to obviously turn now to, to Narragunawali because they're yeah. – um, Particularly, and so the, the the audience for our show is primarily you know early childhood professionals, teachers, educators, leaders. So I'm yep. um, I I know a little bit, but not too much. But I'm I'm really excited to sort of get this hopefully in front of a few more years in the sector. But um, you know, Alex, it sounds like you're pretty keen to, to tell us all about it. Do you want to give us a big rundown of why you know sort of what Narragunawali is, and and I guess you know particularly why it's really important for for services to engage with it. Yeah, yeah. Um... 
you did really well with the pronunciation. That's a, that's a <laughs> first step. Uh, Narragunawali is a word. It comes from Ngunnawal Nambri language. Um, Ngunnawal Ngunnawal language. I'm sorry, which is spoken by Ngunnawal and Nambri people, which are the traditional owners of the area that Canberra is on. So, so the idea is, as a as a national organisation, we wanted to set an example for people to think locally, because this is not something Narragunawali is not designed, and, and reconciliation shouldn't be seen as something which is a you know engaging with this single homogenous culture, which is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, because that's not that's just not true. There is incredible diversity amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's um, histories, cultures, languages, all across the country. So, so a key component of Narragunawali is that is reminding people of that, and to say, don't don't think of this as being generic. This is incredibly specific and local. So, so what we have done, I guess, is by by working with the United Ngunnawal Elders Council, who provided us with the um, with this word, which comes from Ngunnawal language. Um, the word itself means alive, well-being, coming together, and peace. So it's a very beautiful word in its meaning, and also a really nice uh, concept, I suppose, to get your head around. Not just that idea of thinking locally, but also um, the importance of understanding that that perhaps an English way of thinking or using the English language is not the be-all and end-all um, when it comes to the way we think literally the way we think and that's a really key component i guess as well of reconciliation is looking at ourselves so all australians need to look at ourselves and think i wonder if what i think reconciliation means is what it means to everybody else because it probably doesn't and it probably is means many things to many different people and an example would be that here we are in you know an aboriginal language Ngunnawal language which um, this word has come for now it's got at least four different definitions in English as I just said alive well-being coming together peace these beautiful concepts all of which are reconciliation so it's pretty exciting um, uh, concept I suppose to get your head around um, specifically it's designed as you mentioned for early learning services primary and secondary schools but I'll concentrate on early learning services in in what we're talking about today um, and we've provided a platform that that is everything's web-based everything's free so there's no I guess one thing we would say is there's no excuse anymore. People often say, oh, we don't need to do this because it's – it's um, w- one thing might be because we don't have any Aboriginal kids at our school or at our service, and, and that response – our response to that is that actually that means you need to do this even more and that reconciliation is something for all Australians to understand. Um, all Australians need to grow up with a great understanding and respect for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history and culture, um, and too often we've probably deferred back to, to that idea of, oh, you know, we've only got a couple of Aboriginal kids at our school or or even a, a, a principal or a director thinking um, incorrectly often that they don't have any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander kids at their service um, when actually you find out a few years later that you do and, and the idea of identity and identifying is something that is clearly linked to the supportive environment with which that service has. So if a service is engaging in strong respect, uh, relationship building and understanding of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander cultures, then the likelihood of an Aboriginal student um, succeeding and feeling like they are welcome in that environment is greatly increased. And that's that's sort of a, I guess, a no-brainer, but we often seem to put the two things together and, and people hear the word reconciliation. Um, particularly in early learning environments, um, and just think instantly of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, and and I guess also then start leaning very quickly, often down a, a deficit way of thinking, and start thinking about close the gap um, targets. We need to increase Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students' um, uh, literacy, numeracy, all these sorts of things, which are obviously of great concern, and and absolutely we need to do. But the reality is that that is not reconciliation. That's one part of reconciliation. But reconciliation itself is many things. We, we define it by five dimensions of reconciliation. And 
And the, one of those is equality and equity, but that's only one, one of five. And so we have to really, really, really think hard about what we say when we say reconciliation in early learning, because it's not just Aboriginal education. In fact, that's only one part of it. So yeah, this platform has been designed to help um, people to organise everything they're doing across the service um, that relates back to reconciliation. I might I might pause now so you can try and gather my thoughts for me and bring me back <laughs> onto 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 subject because I could go forever. You've given me a lot to think about already, Alex. Probably a couple of things already. Firstly, just completely owning up, I'm slightly ashamed and embarrassed. I live and work on Ngunnawal country. I live and yeah, work right. in Canberra. I had no yep. idea Ngunnawali was a Ngunnawal word yeah. so i now yeah, know yeah. that and we'll be there you go. making sure i i remember that that's that's really fantastic to hear absolutely i think the other thing alex it's it's fascinating and really i'm really pleased you sort of you sort of touched on what can be a really sore point i think which is that uh you hesitate to use the word excuses but that, that there is no excuses for not engaging with this stuff anymore and and you're yep. absolutely right it's particularly where there are no uh, or we think there are no Indigenous children in our space, it's actually more important to engage with those issues because they may not come up. But one Absolutely. of the things I think I've observed in the sector sometimes is, because what that could also lead to is uh, then services and teachers, I think with the best intentions, but then relying on those families to, yep. to, uh, to you know, bridge, you know, um, for that gap and, and begin exploring those Indigenous perspectives yeah. when it shouldn't be the responsibility of Indigenous children and their families to... To, to do this for us or even to open the door for the discussion of us, we should be doing this anyway and involving yep. those pe- the Indigenous children and families if, if, you know, if they're working with us. But it's not, the, you know, it, 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 one of those things, it seems like a no-brainer. Reconciliation isn't really their responsibility. It's probably, you know, organisations and services and teachers uh, who are not Indigenous to, to in, in many cases, take that first step or at least not rely on the Indigenous people they know to, to do that for them. Yeah, it can be. I think it's that idea. It's sort of it's a real balance because there is no doubt at the very heart of reconciliation and at the very heart of Narragunawali is relationships. And so there's no doubt that that relationships between non-Indigenous people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians must be improved. And we have to uh, increase the quality of those relationships and and foster those relationships. So so there's no doubt that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at the, at the centre of reconciliation and, and of what we are doing. And certainly no service should um, embark on a path, of, and you weren't suggesting this, but no service should embark on a path of reconciliation without it being, you know, in terms of, Without it being in partnership and, and in a relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, course, yeah. but but certainly many examples of schools that sit back and and just say, oh, we you know we we don't exactly what you just described. So yes, it's a very common thing, um, and people then I guess do nothing. And and what we have found, and doing nothing, I say that with respect. There's some schools and services that might be doing a few things, which is fantastic, but they could be doing so much more um, than they are. And and I guess doing nothing. We it it's, gets used a bit, I think, in lots of different um, social issues, particularly in terms of education. But doing nothing is often worse than doing something and getting it wrong. And and that idea of and I don't mean we should be achieving or striving. Sorry, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be striving to get things wrong. But the reality is that if we do make a mistake, we can think of it as and again a bit of an education cliche, I guess. But think of it as failing forward and think, you know what, I got that wrong. And a community member has come in and told me that I should never have talked about that particular story, or I have no idea that the disrespect I've shown by using this um, language group or whatever it is. Um, and as a non-Indigenous person, you need to be resilient and say, okay, I've just learned something. In fact, you you might have just given an example of that, Liam, with with Ngunnawal language and Narragunawali just then, which <laughs> yeah. is which is saying, you know what, okay, I didn't know that, now I do. 
um, can you please, and it might take a week for the for the, the dust to settle after this person has come in and told you that you've really done a lot of damage or something, um, you then have to think, okay, have I done, okay, what do I need to do? What do I have to learn to not do that again and to make sure I get it right? And one of those things will be the relationship and, and possibly there was not a relationship beforehand. You didn't check, let's say, <clears throat> Um, what the what the appropriate story is for that area. You didn't think about stories, I should say, that there's incredible stories all across this country. You might not have known um, that there were community members within your school and you went out of the school or out of the service first and then came back in. Whatever the issue is, are all very valid um, things and, and certainly are what you could determine, I guess, as being wrong. But the fact is that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. It should mean that we do that, we get it wrong, and then we think, oh, I didn't realise I got it wrong, now I do. Um, can you please help me and come to that community again and say, I'd really like to not get that wrong again and I'd love your help to work out the best way um, to move forward. And and that generally results, and it, not, it might not be six days later, it could not be six months, could be six years later, honestly, and, and we don't hold back on that. This is not a short-term click here, tick a box and off you go. This is a long-term journey. Um, that might be, but what you'll get at the end of that is a much stronger um, result, I suppose, than if you didn't have that relationship at the heart of everything you're doing. So, so you're right not to. We shouldn't be encouraging anyone to sit back and wait for the Aboriginal community in their in their area to come and say we think you should have a wrap, um, or engage in reconciliation, or or use Narragunnawally. But what we should definitely be doing is um, bringing that conversation forward and saying we're really keen to learn more about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives, histories, cultures, contributions. So can you, um, yeah, can you help me to understand more and doing that. The relationship about how that happens is is really important. I'll pause again for a breath. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I think you. I mean, it's it's you know the, it's clear that that foundational you know a principle from what I can tell of Naraganawali of that relationship building is 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 critical and crucial. <laughs> and it always as with you know as with a lot of uh, not just sort of curriculum frameworks, but a lot of partnerships and engagement with with you know, different perspectives. Those relationships are are absolutely critical. So I mean, if so, if you know there are teachers and services listening today, Alex, who. Um, have liked what they've they've heard um, and yeah. want to get cracking with Naragunawali. What do you recommend they 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 do? Well, one thing I think um, one thing to think about today, particularly, and obviously this will stay in you know digital form for a while, so it won't be always today. But the twenty sixth of May is a is a very significant date in Australia's history that that often school services um, and schools may not even really think about or be aware of, which is a day known as Sorry Day, and the twenty sixth of May. Um, 20 years ago now, so in 2017 is the 20th anniversary of the Bringing Them Home report, which was a date that was, which was a report handed down that that basically um, explained and outlined the devastation that the stolen generations has occurred had has um, created in our in our nation's history and and led obviously to then the apology in 2008. So the 26th of May, sorry day, is an important um, day and it pre precedes National Reconciliation Week, which is the 27th of May always. It's always on the 27th of May to the 3rd of June, which again are two significant milestones. And this year there's anniversaries all over the place. So there's, I guess when you said what should um, services be doing or what could they do if they're interested or thinking about this, I would say that, that there's no time like the present and that the 26th of May 2017 is an important day to commemorate and to reflect on where our nations come and potentially then to say, you know what, we should think more about this um, than we have because 20 years is um, only a short time, but at the same time, it's a long time um, <laughs> for what, what has or hasn't occurred, I guess, in our nation's history since then. Um, that's one thing to do. The 27th of May, I'll just 
briefly touch on that. The 27th of May is the anniversary of the 1967 referendum, which was Australia's most successful referendum. Um, and this is the 50th anniversary of that day. So again, this year, 27th of May, the beginning of National Reconciliation Week, which this year is a Saturday, but that's just how it goes because it's always those dates. Um, and the 3rd of June is the end date of National Reconciliation Week. And that's the anniversary of the Mabo decision, which obviously led to understanding um, of or the the debunking of the concept of terra nullius and and the Marbo decision, very famous High Court decision, obviously is known to most people. That was in 1992, so that's the 25th anniversary of that decision. This is um, a year, huge year for reconciliation. So, <laughs> so I guess again with the with the no excuse idea, perhaps um you know this year no time like the present, and and probably getting involved sooner rather than later is a great idea. Um, and the one thing. Just to, in terms of you know what should, what could services do or what should services do, um, the our, the platform the Narragansett platform has been designed specifically for um, for this for this very person this very early learning service director uh, principal teacher educator whoever it is community member to be honest parents students even probably not in the early learning environment but certainly students can can drive the the idea of changing and and thinking about reconciliation in their school or their early learning service and the platform is designed for that very purpose so so there's not i would i really would say that the first thing is relationships absolutely at the heart of everything um that the framework we use there's always frameworks for these sorts of things relationships respect and opportunities is is one of the frameworks that we consider within uh, Narragansett but we present it in a slightly different way for an early learning service and it's looking at what happens in the classroom so a service needs to think about what are we actually teaching our children and how does that relate to an understanding of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures and that's very important but if that service or that director or, or that teacher teaches a great lesson um in, inside the formal, if you want to use that word, formal classroom or the curriculum component of what's going on in an early learning service environment. But then they go outside onto the playground and they don't intervene when there's quite clearly prejudice occurring or perhaps um, racism even, and or go into the staff room, and I say this with respect, but go into a staff room, sit around a staff room table where a whole bunch of teachers and educators are talking and, and someone says a very deficit sort of thing like, oh, that kid... Um, won't bring their form in because they're Aboriginal or they they won't get the right answer on that quiz because they're Aboriginal. These sorts of things are, are unfortunately what are still going on in Australian early learning services across this country. And I don't mean to make that a, a criticism. It's just a reality. It's a reality of Australian society. There are sometimes less overt and less explicit um, ideas that I've just mentioned, maybe a little more subtle, but certainly it's occurring. So if that happens, then what was the point of this lesson that this service is just engaged in teaching and, and is supposedly encouraging and supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait culture, but then at the same time um, bringing the concept back down to a really deficit way of thinking? So that, that's what we call around the school, around the early learning service. So what's going on in the classroom? Very important. But then how that links into what's going on around the school or around the early learning service is, is just as important, if not more so. Um, so there needs to be action occurring there, and that could be physical um physical environment, but of course it'll be the social environment, as I just mentioned before. And then how that links into the community is vital. So those three areas in the classroom, around the school, with the community, are how we suggest um, a service takes on the the idea of reconciliation action. And, and it's not meant to be daunting because a school or a service can just choose one thing. You might want to learn what country your service is on. And that could be, you know, I've, I've rambled around to get to the point of your question, <laughs> which is what, what could a service do? Um, a service can do that. A service could actually just say, we need to find out where our country, what country our school is on or our service is on. And, and when I say country, I'm talking about the capital C country, which is um, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, of which there are 
there was 250 or so language groups in this country at the time of invasion and colonisation, um, there there are less languages being spoken today fluently, which is devastating, but there is also a lot of reclamation going on. Regardless of that, there are over two, 200 different um, countries, to use that concept, that were that exist here. And the diversity is just as diverse as, as Europe. Often that comparison is used um, when we look at Europe. Sorry, not just as diverse, phenomenally more so, diverse. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the same landmass. People, people sort of say, "Oh, you no, know, that's not possible. It was, you know, it's Australia." But the response um, to to that is pretty clear. Where um, if Europe is a continent and it has got incredible diversity of languages that have borders and have, um, you know, communication between nations, always has been like that for a long time. Think of that in Australia, but times it by probably 50 or 60 different times um, times number of language groups, and you've got the diversity that exists here. So it's it's not a crazy concept to get around if you think of it that way. Um, so, yeah. There's you know, places countries, to start. That's right. Absolutely. And think about country is probably a pretty good one to start with because it's, it's normally something that can result in a, a good relationship. Um, yeah, that's great. And look, and, and as you mentioned, Alex, we're heading into Reconciliation Week. Uh, starting to, tomorrow, um, it's, it's it's pretty incredible that the amount of milestones that have fallen on on this year. But um, yeah. what a and look, and you probably raised some of them just in the question before anyway. But in terms of just engaging with Reconciliation Week uh, in general, like how are, what are some ways you have seen uh, you know sort of school and education settings uh, celebrating Reconciliation Week, and how would you recommend people sort of get involved uh, in their communities with Reconciliation Week in general? I think the um, so there's a number of resources. Again, I, I refer back to the platform rather than trying to sort of reinvent things. We've a whole bunch of this is what exactly is is featured on our website. So there's a there's a whole action around engaging in National Reconciliation Week. Um, within that, we've got curriculum resources, professional learning activities for teachers and educators to consider themselves, think about what they're doing um, within the service and within their own profession. So so that would be the first port of call, I suppose, is to look at that action within. Um, on the website that actually contains the information about National Reconciliation Week. Um, probably, and, and although I said there's no time like the present, probably my own advice, some advice I would give is not to rush and not to um, attempt to do something by next Monday because it happens to be National Reconciliation Week. This should be happening all year, all round, all the time. This is this is obviously a chance for us to talk about reconciliation in a more, get the bit of the public spotlight around it. But the reality is, this is something that's going needs to happen all the time, and so so don't feel like you need to rush and think, oh, we've got to do something by next week, um, because that often can be more damaging because you skip the relationship building part of it and you quickly get into something and then you realise, oh, we shouldn't have done that because we didn't actually talk to the right person and should have spent a bit more time. Um, follow your gut instinct. If you're doing this for a good reason, um, and I'm talking to directors, teachers, educators, whoever it is that's listening, um, if you're doing it for a good reason, then it's probably going to be. Um, come out with a good result and and people often ask and say I don't want to be tokenistic and they question perhaps and say you know how do I make sure I don't do something that's tokenistic or I want to do this the right way what's what's not going to be tokenistic and and the our strongest response to that is a really maybe it sounds a little bit cheeky but but really our response is don't be tokenistic then you know like if you're doing <laughs> something that's meaningful then it'll be meaningful and and it's unlikely to be tokenistic if you um, haven't just for example and I'm saying this, we obviously built a website, but if you haven't just gone to a website, clicked, you know, download, press print and handed out a whole bunch of flyers to everybody and said, now we're doing Reconciliation Week, that sounds pretty tokenistic to me. So probably don't do that. Um, have a think about building some relationships that could take, like I said before, six weeks, six months, who knows how long it might take for those relationships to build um, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that will then result in um, 
the the direction that that service heads being set um, in a in a process of reconciliation, which is doing things together in unity. Um, so I guess. Yeah, the suggestion would be definitely get to our website because there's heaps of resources there specifically designed for early learning services uh, and and that will hopefully be useful, but but also not to rush. So, so get to the site definitely and there will be all sorts of things that you can do um, that hopefully won't be damaging <laughs> to, to uh, relationship building, et cetera. Um, and then and then have a think about it and think how is this best going to work within our service and, and when, for example. Don't, don't feel like this is just a only to be done for a week or a year it's it's every day every week um yeah so think about that probably also at the heart of of why you're doing it exactly and Olga, i think you've uh, you've pretty much uh, answered the next question was going to be off my uh, off my list which was that importance of engaging with um aboriginal and torres strait islander perspectives all through the year i think there's always yeah, a bit of a risk yeah. with, with the big you know reconciliation week and nadoc week and aboriginal Absolutely. children's days that instead of using these as springboards for for action that continues all through the year they're often just seen as, as milestones that are marked and, and roll around um yeah. all through the year but it, it, is that how you would see them as that is, even if you haven't started engaging with this stuff don't feel like you can't um not start at these times but make sure it is yeah. a start definitely i think it's, it's an ideal way of springboards a beautiful word to use it's it's a these can be springboards for people um and should be which is exciting um the i think that concept as well that 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 relationship building obviously you just mentioned a few events which are key um, events throughout the year for early learning services hopefully at least key events national reconciliation week is one of those nadoc week is another um, where we celebrate aboriginal and torres Strait Islander peoples histories cultures contributions and that's a that's a week um, specifically i guess often um, i guess more owned by aboriginal and torres Strait Islander people rather than it being about reconciliation it's specifically about aboriginal and torres Strait Islander people and and that should be driven and, and certainly run by um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, but the and and Children's Day, of course, eighth of August, a great example. What the um, I think the the concept of people often think, oh, I need to do something for Reconciliation Week, and and I know I'm going a very roundabout way of answering this question of yours, but the there's a real pragmatic thing as well here, which is that during these times, NRW and NADOC, um, for of particularly, the the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, which represents basically probably a little less if maybe a little more than three percent of the australian of australian people society um are stretched massively during these times because we're all saying we need to have relationships with aboriginal people and so every every early learning service <laughs> in a community is ringing the same um aboriginal torres Strait Islander elder who has said yes i'm happy to come and you know work with your service or something they're they're copying 25 different phone calls a day um that's that's an incredible expectation that shouldn't it shouldn't be an expectation but it but unfortunately has become at times yeah. those sorts of things um so so there's actually a lot of strength um in doing a lot of things outside of these times it doesn't mean you do nothing during nrw or nadoc but but consider how much better it would be if you could actually plan and, and proceed down a path with an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community member that resulted in something happening, you know, in October or happening in February or happening, you know, there's all sorts of times of the year when something could occur, a, a, you know, a big significant event for your early learning service. Um, and don't feel like that's somehow, I think sometimes people think that might even be a disrespectful way to approach it, but it's not at all. It's a, it's a great idea. And, I, and most of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community members that we work with um, express great excitement when there's things going on outside of NADOC and NRW. They love those events, of course, but it's such a stretch. So, so yeah. I think, I think really embrace the idea that you can do things other times. Yeah. I don't think we've ever thought about the logistics of that before, but that's actually no, a, a, a very good point. Important part. <laughs> um, 
that's look that, that fantastic been really fascinating to to hear about that and particularly on you know hopefully the people listening will really take away that concept of of relationships as the key to all this but you know alex for you personally or you know speaking for reconciliation australia if there was you know one or two or, or however many you want if there were things you could just you know sort of give to all all people working in early childhood education professionals teachers etc if there was some you know a call to action or just something you wish they would they, that everyone across australia knew what 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 you know, what would that be? Um, I think there's I think there's quite a few different ways to, to take that idea, that call to action. I think I think a huge part of reconciliation, particularly for educators and teachers, um, is to have a have a think about ourselves and our own understanding. So so I would I would probably suggest specifically for this audience and the idea of thinking about early learning and myself as a teacher, I work with a team, by the way, that, that everyone that works on Narragunawali come from a teacher and education background. Um, we represent, I guess, the audience we're working with, early learning, primary, secondary school, a mix of Aboriginal people, non-Indigenous people, women and men. Um, so it's a pretty diverse group in the, in the idea of reconciliation. And I think we would probably, you know, in thinking about what how early learning services operate, really think about your own um personal understanding of reconciliation in Australia. And if that means um, that you can then jump straight into reading a book with the kids and, and teaching a lesson and having a think about something, having a, a great conversation with with children, then absolutely do it. But if it means then you have to stop and think, I'm not entirely sure where I'm at with this, I don't really know what this means, um, then come to our website, obviously, because this is where you'll be able to learn some more about about this and more about reconciliation in Australia, particularly that concept of, I guess, what even does reconciliation mean? Because it means so many things to many different people. But if you don't know yourself before you move on, then it's probably, it could potentially be something where you're going to either make mistakes or you're going to feel less comfortable um, as you go. So I think I think starting with yourself is a really important bit of advice. That would be one thing. Um, obviously, the, the generic call to action is go to our website. <laughs> so I <laughs> So I definitely suggest that the um, the Narragunali website, which is found at the Reconciliation Australia's homepage, Reconciliation Australia, what am I saying? Reconciliation.org.au/narragunawali, um, and and if you Google Narragunawali any way you spell it, even though I could tell you the correct spelling, if you spell it any way, you'll end up finding it. Um, the that that platform is certainly a place to start. So so the call to action would be definitely to to head there. Um, think about yourself. Head to our website, and probably the the last one, which which comes up many times in discussion with people, is is the idea of listening, and and it's a really it it's, can seem a bit, perhaps a bit warm and fuzzy and a little bit you know, lovey dovey or something, but the reality is that if we don't listen, um, then we're not going to be able to learn, and and there's a and when I say we, I'm talking I guess as Australian society, if Australian society doesn't stop and actually listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait people then the likelihood of us moving forward together is is limited dramatically. So so really think about that. Really think about listening. Um, think about what action you can take personally um, and obviously have a look at our website, which will probably help to articulate all of those things. We've got a whole bunch of resources. Many of them are film-based resources. So, so there's, again, no excuse for the idea, oh, we don't really know any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our community yet, or we want to build relationships, we haven't got there yet. Um, there's there's videos and films on our website that could absolutely serve the purpose um, for having the voice of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person in the classroom. Some really amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have lent their um, their interviewing skills and prowess um, to many of the resources we've made, which will help people to have a presence in the classroom that may otherwise not be there. 
So, yeah, I don't know. They were my three things and another, <laughs> another thing at the end. <laughs> they, they're fantastic. Look, I, I can attest to there's some fantastic resources on the, the Reconciliation Australia website. We'll include a link uh, in the show notes to there as well so people can track that down. But, uh, Alex, we really appreciate your time today. I know it's busy in the lead-up to uh, this uh, today and, and the upcoming week, so best of luck with Reconciliation Week. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks again to Alex for joining me. It was really great to have a chat with him about uh, those, yeah, really fantastic issues. And I hope uh, everyone listening has some fantastic plans for National Reconciliation Week this week. I know I'm looking forward to doing some things in the organisation I work with. But we will now move on to our recommendations for the week. And we're going to have three this week instead of our two from last week. It's very good to have you back, Lisa. Uh, Leanne, why don't you, (laughs) why don't you, have you, uh, you might have been sneaky. Are you bringing two for us, Leanne, this week? Well, I'm not really bringing two. I'm bringing, and I'll only talk about one, but people can look at the context because it was, it's actually the launch of a book. And then I have linked to that book so people can buy it. And the book is called, what was that? I'll allow it. Oh, thank you. I'll only talk (laughs) about one though. Um, The book is called Voices and Visions and it's, uh, the subtitle is Aboriginal Early Childhood Education in Australia. And this book is written um, by Aboriginal educators and practitioners, which is fantastic. And it's the first book of its kind. It's published by Paddy Mellon Press. And I'll just read the, the para that tells us about it. It's This book reflects the stories of practitioners in Aboriginal early childhood education in Australia. It is not just their stories, but a text for how Aboriginal worldviews and frameworks are incorporated in what they do. As Aboriginal people, we have always had to conform to a Western schooling system, one which does not fully appreciate our knowledges. In what you are about to read, there is an implied but silent script in that. You listen now and let us tell you. And I just thought it was a, a wonderful book. I'll certainly be buying a copy of it and uh, edited by the fabulous Karen Martin. Sounds fantastic. Right. Yeah, yeah mm. check it out, everyone. Um, I'm going to link... Can we get that out of our um, early education show resources our budget? Patron, yeah, maybe. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> our professional development budget. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> We've all got $5 each, haven't we? <laughs> Yeah, um, but that's going to last the whole year. <laughs> um, I'm going to link to uh, I'm going to link to some fantastic uh, resources that you can grab from Snake. We've we've talked about Snake uh, and actually interviewed Geraldine Atkinson from Snake before. Um, on their website, you can order some fantastic uh, early years learning framework fact sheets uh, from an Indigenous perspective. They're really fantastic. We've got them uh, where I work and our, in our centres. They're they're a really great um, conversation starter for services as well as um, sort of providing a bit different, a bit of a different lens and perspective on the early years learning framework. I'd really recommend uh, checking them out. Uh, they're really, you know, great for team meetings, great for uh, teachers and educators who are who, who want to engage with this stuff. With um, you know, a resource that's actually developed by an indigenous organisation specifically for early childhood and specifically for the national quality framework, which is uh, you know pretty fantastic. So good on Snake for developing those. Uh, what are you going to bring us, Lisa? Look, I'm bringing us an article from The Guardian and it's about how Victoria is tackling institutionalised racism in child protection. And the reason I'm doing it was because some of the figures in it were just, like, stunning to me. Like, 87 out of every 1,000 Aboriginal children in Victoria are in out-of-home care. 
And of those 87 out of every 1,000 children, 91% are placed in non-Aboriginal families. And as the Commissioner for Aboriginal um, uh, Children and Young People said, hang on, he said, you can't tell me that 91% of Koori children placed outside of our community is based on a whole lot of bad Koori people. And I think that's really... You know, like a telling quote. But the other thing he did was he, he has to, as part of his job, he's got to examine all the deaths in in custody, deaths in out-of-home care. And he said each child's story is different. Um, he said you see some that you think, you know, if, they'd, if we'd invested more money in the family, if we'd spent more money in keeping that child at home, that that child might be still alive. And then he said, but then you see babies and you think, why didn't we remove this child earlier? The child would still be alive. So I think it, it kind of like really realistically talks about that everyone would want child protection to be a really easier and cleaner and neater and, and, and more easy to deal with situation. But it never is, and I think he he really um, uh, when he talks about it that way, you see that it isn't an easy answer. No, not at all. All right, definitely worth checking that one out as well. Well, um, that's it for the recommendations, and that's uh, mostly it for this week's episode. Thanks again for joining us. Um, a few things, if you didn't check out our most recent episode before this one's episode 30, we started a new sort of mini-series within the series, which is looking at the new uh, sort of revised National Quality Standard, which is launching in February 2018. Over the rest of the year, we'll be dropping the odd episode that looks at uh, each quality area one at a time. So we started with Quality Area 1 and had a great chat with Rhonda Livingston, the National Education Leader. Uh, for a sequel so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that I really recommend going back our next one will be on quality area 2 which is children's health and safety which will be at some point in the near future uh, as always we really value and appreciate any support you can give the show you can uh, support us in two pretty big ways you can support the show financially for a little as little as one dollar a month at patreon.com forward slash early edgy show that support's really valuable we, we, we really appreciate it it means we can do some fun and funky things in the near future yes leanne a big uh, big party at the end of the year still on the cards um if you well, don't <laughs> if you can't do that um a rating and review on the apple podcast store is always really valuable as well it bumps us up in the rankings and means more early childhood professionals and interested people can find the show uh if you want to talk to us find out more about what we're doing or flick us some feedback or uh ideas for future topics uh, you can get in touch with us in a few different ways you can email the show early edgy show at gmail.com we're also on facebook and twitter at early edgy show on both those social networks you can also get in touch with us all individually on Twitter, I'm at Liam McNicholas. I'm at Lisa J. Bryant. And I'm at Leanne M. Gibbs. Well done. And until next week, we hope hey, you... Liam, just <laughs> before you go, someone lobbied me today to get onto the show. Oh, who? Can you can you disclose no, 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 in public? No, I won't disclose in oh, public. You know, we're leading on. This yeah, is like, it was a definite lobby. This is a, like a cliffhanger for the show. Maybe yeah, we if they ever, if they ever, pretty, 
we've got some pretty cool upcoming guests as well. So they're probably right to have lobbied you, Lisa, because the guest list is very prestigious these it days. It is, it is, not just well, anyone. Well, that's what I said. We couldn't, I couldn't see a way that I could get them in this year, but possibly <laughs> next year. We're nice. now taking bookings nice. for 2018. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next week, we hope everyone has a fantastic week and, uh, you know, it is, does a fantastic job sort of exploring Reconciliation Week as well. So until next week, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. 